Hello and welcome to the Hoff Podcast. I'm Daniel Turner, the pastor of the Tyler House of Faith. We take these messages from our weekly services and then release them here on our podcast channel for you. We hope you dig it. So two weeks ago it was that I started this a series about our in- inheritance. Like, I think I'm going to call it the Legacy Series since I don't ever do series. I was like, well, I'll even name it and everything. And um, what is the legacy that we have of the family of faith? faith, of, of a house of faith, of, uh, as Christians, of those who are following the Lord. And, um, and so I started with the life of a man named Abram. And um, I think there's just absolutely so much to see in his life. And I think he's a very crucial and important person for us all to, to watch his life like a movie. But before we start there, um, or continue there where we started, I want to read the scripture concerning Abram in um, Hebrews 11, where it says, By faith Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out of the place which we, he would receive as an inheritance, and he went out not knowing where he was going. <clears throat> Funny verse, but it's like it's attributed to him that God came to him and said, Hey, I've, I've chosen you, and it's time for us to go on a road trip, and so you need to pack up and leave your father's house and everything that is what has become your culture and move forward. And it wasn't like, all right, cool. Where are we going? It's like, well, you'll know when we get there, but I'm just telling you to leave. It's time to go. And there's this aspect of faith that I think is very um, valuable for even us to see that God calls him to go somewhere and he doesn't tell him where he's going. He just tells him that it's time for him to go. You know, and there's this faith that like he's learning or or being introduced to this God who, you know, as we said last week, he becomes known as the God of Abraham, the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. And um, God, in in a sense, as we as we've talked about, is is literally starting over after Babel, as it says in Deuteronomy 32, that the nations or the world was divided according to the, num- to the number of the sons of God or the Benai Elohim. This, it's this commentary about what happened in Babel, this major rebellion, where all the languages and cultures and nations of the world came from, and how God, in Genesis 12, right after that story, picked one person to start over. And I'm going to be his God, and I'm going to make a nation out of him. And in his family, as the promise came to him, was all of the nations of the world, all the families of the entire world would be blessed through this one man's lineage. And talk about a promise, man. Talk about a covenant. Through your lineage, every family of the, of the world would be blessed. And it's now looking back at it in hindsight, it's this incredible recovery of the father of lights. The father who the scripture literally says like, Every family on the earth and in heaven derives their lineage and name from. God as our Father is actually bringing us back into our house, into our true lineage. And out of this lineage that we've um, mistakenly, because of some corruption, have, have, have aligned ourselves with this tree of knowledge of good and evil, now we're coming back into our true lineage, the tree, the family tree of life. And so it's this brilliant story of how he calls this one man and says, hey, we're going somewhere. And it's like, where we're going, where are we going? It's like, well, where we're going is that you're going to follow me. And it's like, okay, well, okay. Well, what? So that is the destination. 
But we come to find out in this walk, that actually is the destination, y'all. Knowing Him and following Him. He is our shield and our exceedingly great reward. He is our inheritance. He is our lineage. We sing these songs about the name of Jesus. But the name is more than a name. Yeshua or Joshua, you know, it's more than an actual name. It is as the Israelites called God, Hashem, the name. The name, the one, the essence, the being, the person of who God is, everything. Now we've come on this side of the tracks to understand Colossians. says that Jesus is the fullness of deity embodied. The fullness, everything of which God is, is embodied in a human form. And his name is Jesus. But there's so much more. He is our inheritance. He is our lineage. He is our family. And we are coming back into this relationship of stepping out of Adam and backing back into Jesus. And so it's, it's, it's really beautiful. But this Hebrews 11, this hall of faith, what I wanted to kind of start off with, Abram being called and actually not knowing where he's going, and that's what it means to be in faith, says he dwelt in the land of promise as in a foreign country. It's like, actually, he came into the promised land as if he was a foreigner. And it says, For he waited for the city which has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. And that's Hebrews 11.10. And man, that's beautiful. Hebrews 11 goes on and it talks about these people who were seeking a city and seeking a homeland. It says, They died in faith, having not received the promises, but having seen them from afar off, were assured of them, embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For those who say such things declare plainly that they seek a homeland. Hmm. And it's like, you have these greats, you have this hall of fame, this hall of faith that's Hebrews 11. And the writer of Hebrews, by the Holy Spirit writing this thing down, is saying the world wasn't even worthy of most of these people. But they lived, their goals were not to fit into the society. It wasn't the best neighborhoods or country clubs or, or to make a name for themselves as it was for the people who were building Babel. They were actually seeking something else. A city whose builder and maker was God. It's like, what? They were seeking something heavenly. They were seeking something eternal. They were thinking outside of the frame of this box that we call reality. You know, Hebrews 11 does start with that. It says, by faith, um, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that the things which are seen were not made of things which are visible. That's Hebrews 11.3. By faith, we understand that we're seeking a city whose builder and maker is God, a heavenly place that's more real than this place. And we understand that the world or this reality was actually framed in by the word of God. In other words, it is a lesser dimension than the reality which created it. There's something more real than even what we can see with our natural eyes. That's what Hebrews 11.3 says. That's by faith. That's the understanding that we come into. And see, it's talking about these people that live this way, that something happened to them that they thought, wait a second, it's worth me leaving everything that I've ever known. My family culture, my, my history, my, even my family inheritance, because Abram had one. It's worth me leaving all of that because I've met someone 
And his inheritance is more real than this. It's outside of this, but it is more real than this. It's the creator. And this is the faith we're called to walk in. We have so many goals in this world. But I promise, if you sat across the table from any of the people that are listed in Hebrews 11, your mind would be challenged. These people did not care about the things that we care about. They, don't, they did not care about status. They didn't care about how they appeared in society. They, didn't, they don't even care about what people see as success and, and you know, all these different things or where they fit in or what side of the tracks they live on. They were, they were living, as it says, as strangers and pilgrims in this world. It sounds like a Star Wars movie, y'all, or like Lord of the Rings or something. But their hearts were not set on anything in this plastic, temporary reality. They were looking past it into something that was eternal. And that's what it meant to walk in faith. That's what it meant to see past this into where our true inheritance, into where our true lineage comes from. So when God comes to Abram and he says, hey, guess what? It's time to go, leave your father's house. It's like, hey, that's never the way that this thing has been done. You know, that's never the way that this, that's not the right way of the five-year plan. But he knew something. He said, hey, it's more valuable to follow you, this God who's, who's, who's literally introducing himself to him than it is to follow the ways of my fathers. And so we have this story. We've, we talked about it last week. I, I don't even think I'll do much of a recap. When, when God comes to Genesis 12 and he, and he tells him, get away from your father's house and follow me. Those who curse you, a curse will be upon them, but those who bless you, I will bless and your family, your lineage will be a blessing over the entire world. He follows his true family tree, and he constantly moves, makes moves, and he runs into these places that are marked by these massive oak trees, and, those, and in those places, he has meetings with the Lord. He has visitations from him. He's getting to know him. I said I wasn't going to do a recap, and I lied, because now I'm like, the, a famine arose in the land. And he went to Egypt because he was afraid. He went to Egypt and then he was afraid of Pharaoh and the princes and said his wife was his sister. You know, we learn these lessons from the oak of the teacher, the oak of Moray and, and the oak of Mamre, the, the oak of strength, that he understood that he made a mistake because he was afraid of the, of the, uh, the drought or the famine that was in the world. And it, and it almost caused him to go back to the machine. It caused him back to go back to Egypt. This is a major temptation of many who walk the walk of faith. It truly is. They start to walk. They start to, they start to follow the Lord. And then all of a sudden, they, they experience the shaking around them, which is the kingdom of heaven. It is meant to establish the reality of the eternal realm in their life. But the fear comes and they steer back to Egypt. They steer back into the world or they steer back into the system, you know, into the machine because there it's safe. There it's comfortable. Of course, he wasn't very comfortable when he got back into the machine because his wife was about to be taken from him. He was having to live a completely different reality. He was living a lie of who he truly was because of fear, and that's what fear does to people. It causes them to be someone they're not. <laughs> you know what I mean? And luckily, the graciousness of God came and actually warned Pharaoh, like, hey, that's not his sister, that's his wife. Leave Sarai alone, <laughs> you know what I mean? Abram comes back to his right mind and gets back to the oak where he had uh, the oak of his teacher and the oak of the strength of the Lord and meets back with the Lord and says, okay, I was off track. 
he comes back into alignment as we do so often. It's called repentance in Christianity, right? The ability to turn around. Yeah. So Genesis 14 continues that story. He's come back to the place of his strength. He's come back to the place of knowing the Lord, his exceedingly great reward. The one, this God who showed up to him. Remember, there's many gods in the world in those days, right? That is Deuteronomy 32.8. It says that when the, when the referencing Babel of Genesis 10 and 11, the table of nations, and saying like, hey, like when the, the nations were divided according to the number of the Benai Elohim, the sons of God, these lesser gods, all these, all these pagan deities that people followed after Abram doesn't know God from another God. He just knows he's meeting him, telling him, telling him to move forward. He's literally learning who God is. He's, he's building a track record of trust with this God. You know, he's constantly afraid. It's hilarious. The more we get into Abraham's lineage, Isaac and Jacob, they were all scared too. They did some of the most boneheaded, sketchy, just absolutely sketchy, ridiculous things and, and were constantly getting corrected by God, but in a gentle and kind way. It's hilarious because they didn't fully know him or trust him yet. But he's met Abram, and last, last week we saw his, you know, his nephew, or two weeks ago, we saw his nephew Lot, you know, and basically he gave Lot land and area that he could live wherever he wanted to. Lot picked bad land, Abraham didn't. Lot was connected to land where there was a lot of tumult, there was a lot of um, fighting, infighting. There was a lot of those Nephilim of Genesis 6. There was a lot of wars that were going to happen, and Lot was getting pulled into them. <clears throat> this isn't even the worst of them. But what happens, there's a war in Genesis 14. We won't really do it. 5 Kings verses 4. And Lot's living, as we would say, on the wrong side of the tracks and gets caught up in that war and gets taken captive, him and all of what he has. And um, it's... Really not a great thing. And in Genesis 14, um, somebody who escaped the captives in this war, the captors, he comes back to the Oak of Strength, which is where, um, where Abram was. And he relays to him like, yo, your nephew, in this, in this instance it calls him his brother, but it's like his brethren, your blood. He's been taken captive. This war's happened. He got caught up in the middle of it. It says, but when Abram heard this, that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house. And he went in pursuit as far as Dan. He divided his forces against them by night, he and his servants, and attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. And he brought back all of the goods and also brought back his brother, which was really his nephew, Lot, and his goods, as well as the women of the people. So we see here that Abram wasn't just like this skittish, you know, sketchy guy that we kind of see. He was just put in situations of following God where fear was manifesting in his heart and he was learning to trust God. But when stuff got really hairy, Abram mounted up and went and he actually really wrecked shop against a group of kings that were involved with basically a Nephilim clash that was going on. And he wrecked shop and he rescued his nephew and brought back all their goods and all their stuff. And it says something very obscure in Genesis 14. We, we meet this character. You know, I say a lot of times, hey, today we're going to watch this like a movie. The Bible is like 
the way that it's written, right? Sometimes we, it, we can get into a religious mindset. We're just like, you know, I got to read through, through this so that I feel like I can check that off my list. I'm being a good Christian. I'm doing all this stuff. But these books, it's meditative literature. You feel me? It's like, it's meant to be like, say la. It's meant to be parked on. It's meant to be looked at and like, what's going on there? It's just like when you watch a movie and you're watching some of the open scenes and, you know, there was a, a dark yellow minivan that kind of creeps slowly around the corner and you see, the, and the camera just catches it. You think like, what was that? That's going to come back later on in the movie. Like, I wonder if that's where the killer's at or I wonder if that's where, you know, the bombs are hidden or, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's like, but the Bible is exactly that way because it's breathed of God. You know what I mean? So there's nothing in there that's in there by accident. There's human influence in a lot of it, especially in the historical books that's taken out of context. But there's no details or characters or stuff that are in there or name meanings that are in there accidentally. Everything is meant to be like, yo, what was that yellow minivan doing right there? Oh, that was something right there. You know what I mean? Everything's like that. But there's a major character in Genesis 14 named Melchizedek that people have argued about for hundreds of years who he really is. But it's like, he's, one of, he's a yellow minivan, if I've ever seen one. He's like a real strange, like, whoa, what was that? Who was that guy? You know what I mean? And he shows up in this scene. Because God is very much speaking something to every single one of us. And um, he brings back the goods. The king of Sodom went out to meet, meet him at the, at the valley of Shavad. That is the king's valley after his return from the defeat. Um, and the other kings are with them, and, and, and it might have even been a replacement king because a bunch of them got killed. It says, but then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. It's like, wait a second. He was the priest of El Elyon. No one's ever heard of El Elyon before, Right? You've got the, the sons of God, the Elohim. You have the gods of, of Babel in Genesis 32 and Genesis, or Deuteronomy 32. Genesis. You have these, this, the principalities and powers, as Paul calls them, but you've never heard of one God who's like the most high. He's different than all the other you know, pagan deities and stuff throughout the, whole test, the Old Testament. It's like you have one called the most high. He's different than all of them. And we meet this guy named Melchizedek out of the blue randomly after Abram has actually went out and laid his life down for his brother to rescue him, put his stuff on the line in order to rescue his own people. And this Melchizedek, who's the king of Salem, which again, is, it is the name of Jerusalem. You know, it's, 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 it's hardly ever used. David used it in Psalm 76 said in Judah, God is known, his name is great in Israel. His abode has been established in Salem. It's like, it's, it's like he's been here. But this is before Jerusalem, what we know of Jerusalem exists. And this is the word for Jerusalem. So it's like Jerusalem, the capital city, the place where Jesus is going to come back. And, you know, it's like, wait a second. Like, and this guy named Melchizedek just shows up and he's a king and he's a priest of the Most High God. It's like, wait a second. God is just, if we're, if we're thinking about this through like watching it like a movie, we're like, well, God has picked one person, Abram, and he says, I'm going to make a nation out of him. The other gods make nations out of your people. I'm going to make a nation out of my guy. 
I'm the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, his lineage and his people. And become, you know, Jacob ends up being named Israel and Israel becomes the people of God and all these things. But there's somebody in Jerusalem already who's a priest and a king simultaneously. You can't do both of those. Well, Melchizedek did. You know. And he's, he's living in this role that he's this, his name means king of righteousness. There's all these little, little, little hints about this guy. See, and you're like, what are you? You're the king of righteousness and you're the king of peace of Jerusalem, of Salem. And he shows up and he blesses Abram for what he's just done. So this guy, this physical person shows up, this king that's like, who's this territory? Where's Jerusalem? Like, how's this even a place yet? It's Mount Zion, you know. It's the, it's the prime location. And he blesses Abram, God of the Most High. I bless you. Blessed be Abram of El Elyon, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be El Elyon, the God Most High, who's delivered your enemies into your hand. And then it says, and Abram gave him a tithe of, all that, of 10% of all that he had, which is like, what is even that about? So then you have Abram giving, giving him 10% of all of his, of his stuff, almost as if he's yielding to this guy who is... We don't even know who this is. And he's this priest king that shows up on the scene. Of course, Sodom says to Abraham, give me the people and take the goods for yourself. And, and, you know. But Abraham says to Sodom, like, hey, I've raised my hand to the Lord, God most high, the possessor of heaven and earth. So now he's calling him El Elyon. He's learning about who God is, that I will take nothing from a thread to a sandal strap of all that I will take, I will take nothing that is yours, lest you should say I, I made Abram rich. Only what the young men have eaten and the portion of the men that are with me. And it's like, you see this contrast of the, the God of uh, basically Babylon, basically the machine, the God of Sodom, the God of, God of the worldly way of things. And that king is like, hey, like, give me, give to me. But then there's this other king who's the king of righteousness, the king of peace, the, a, a priest of El Elyon, the, the Most High God, and he's actually brought out of his own sustenance bread and wine to give to Abram and to his people. So we have this character who's showing up named Melchizedek, and, and he brings to the table, he brings bread and he brings wine to Abram and his people. And Abram gives him a tithe of all that he has. And to me... It's, I'm not saying that I'm right, because it's really argued by theologians back and forth. Is this really, is this king just a random, he just happened to be there, just happened to have all these traits, or is this the one? Is this Jesus? Is this him? I think it's him, you know, and I'm right, but I, I could not be right, you know, um, because there's no full way to tell. But when I was looking at that, and I was looking at what's being written here, um, he's, he's showing up, and God is revealing himself to Abram. But all this stuff is written for us to actually ponder and see. Everything's being set up for us. Israel does not know God. You have to understand, 
the, the family tree, which we were never supposed to be a part of, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, from which all disease and sickness and darkness and pain and negativity came into our lineage and attached itself to humanity, to Adam, that tree has caused Adam, which means mankind, to see God in a way that he was never meant to be seen, right? We've seen God as, as bipolar or um, schizophrenic. He's good and he's evil. There's the gentle good one and there's the kind one. There's the one He teaches us a lesson. He gives us, he crashes on our life and does mean things to us in order to teach us a lesson. Like all these bipolar, good cop, bad cop, this poison view of who God is has come in and Adam and Eve are trying to cover themselves with them leaves, them fig leaves, which is, you know, that tree. And they're hiding from God because they've projected all of their fear upon him. We have projected, that is what religion is. It is projecting all of your fear upon him and then subscribing to the knowledge of good and evil, the rules and regulations, what's right and what's wrong, the ability to judge, the, the original poison of how many hoops we can jump through so that we will be accepted by him and that he won't smack us down. That's religion. We've projected something because of our own veil, as it calls. The Bible calls it in 2 Corinthians 3. When we see him without the veil, we see him as he truly is and we're transformed into the same image from glory to glory. But when the veil is there, we're seeing him through a lie, through a poison, and we are projecting all the darkness that we feel onto him. And it's not true. And if you can see these stories, God is just starting to reintegrate and, and reconnect and rekindle relationship to, hum to humankind, to Adam. And he's picked one man to walk with in order to do it. You know what I mean? He's patient. He's not slow concerning his promises. He like actually takes a while to actually get things going. And he starts, I'm going to pick Abram and he's going to be my guy. You pick your guys and I'm going to start. I'm going to make him a nation. Imagine that. The creator of all things starts his nation with one person when there's already people all over the world. But his goal is to reclaim everybody, dead and alive, all over the world, whoever lived or will live. And he did it. And so here he is. He's picked this one guy, and now we're watching this movie as meditation literature. We're seeing what he was learning, and he's actually given us these concepts, right? God is programming these concepts throughout these stories for us to see something. There's a prototype. There's this man that shows up after this battle. When Abram has started trusting God, he's actually fallen off that wagon. He's went back to Egypt. He did some sketchy thing. But now he's going back to this kingdom first mentality. He's actually laying his life down for his brother. Then Melchizedek, king of righteousness, shows up and he brings the, what I believe is the calling card of the Lord Jesus. That's his business card, man. That is his calling card. It is bread and it is wine. That is who he is. That is what he told his disciples. Do this often in remembrance of me. Yeah? You go back and read 1 Corinthians 11. The Apostle Paul is saying, I, when the Apostle Paul is talking about communion, he's like, stop being religious about it and making it a youth night and people are hungry and all this weird stuff that's happening this ritual is your life. He's like, I'm giving to you guys what the Lord taught me. The Apostle Paul, who was, who was still a Pharisee and was attacking Christians many years after Jesus was crucified, wasn't with the 12 disciples at the Last Supper where Jesus says, I've longed to do this with you guys. Communion was like his, 
I say his bread and butter, it was his bread and wine. He's like, I've longed to institute this reality for you guys, right? And the Apostle Paul, he's living out in the, in the wilderness like Obi-Wan Kenobi for 10, 13 years, and he's learning to take communion from Jesus who is coming back and visiting him. That's what 1 Corinthians 11 is saying. He's like, he's like, I learned this from him. Somebody would be like, you didn't learn that from him. He was dead a long time before you. You might have learned from his disciples. But Paul's literally saying in the scriptures, I, he, he, he taught this to me. And he goes on and he says, those who do this without reverence are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. They're still living as Adam. Those who are in re religious works and they're just doing this as a ritual, they're still in Adam. He says, people are doing this without reverence and that's, that's why many of you are sick. Many of you are weak and many of you go to sleep early. And it's just like, what? If we really looked at the scriptures the way it's written, the Apostle Paul is saying, hey, this bread and hey, this wine, this communion, this common union, this koinonia, this fellowship that you're called to walk in, People don't understand what it's really about. And because of that, people get sick, people die early, and people are weak in their flesh, in their body. It's like, what? What do you mean? Is it, is it magical? Is the bread magical? Should we bow to it like our Catholic brothers do? You know, I love that they have reverence for it, to be honest. I love that. I mean, I don't, I'm not, obviously not Catholic. But it's like, that's kind of, it's cool that there's some reverence there. But it, he's saying, like, literally, it's not about the bread and the wine. It's about the body that was broken for you and the blood which is shed in the new covenant. When you do this in remembrance of me, you're remembering who you are and you're stepping into your true lineage. Everything that Jesus paid for us to have is supposed to be ours. Everything that we inherited through the lineage of the fall, through Adam, through the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he's given us what's called repentance and remission of sins. To where you can repent, turn from that, and the remission of sins is as, is as if it has no right to contact us, to connect to our bodies and to our flesh and to our mind. And the Bible, man, it's, it's pretty offensive when you think about it and controversial because it's like, hey, I'm not experiencing this in my life. I'm having hiccups or I'm having battles and wars over this stuff. But you have these other writers like James, Jesus' little half-brother, that's saying, hey, like, count it all joy when you experience various trials. Knowing that it's the testing of your faith to produce perseverance. Like everything that contradicts the truth of the scriptures and the bread and the wine that is this communion that actually that the blood of Jesus cleanses you and separates you from the effects and the inheritance of the fall. If, if you're not living that truth, it's okay. Count it all joy that you're experiencing the, the pressure of that reality, but don't give up. You feel me? It's like don't, don't come unglued from this truth. It's producing perseverance, like lock into that which is truth and it will manifest in your life. And so here we have Jesus. I mean, you think about this, right? The calling card, Luke 24. Jesus, after he was crucified, he's walking with those disciples on the road to Emmaus. Remember that story? Jesus is crucified. He's resurrected two days later, three days later. And there's a couple guys walking kind of like, Boudet and uh, that's Cajun. What do you, how do you say? They're kind of like, um, what's Texas? They're kind of butthurt, I guess. They're kind of just worn out, like, oh, they're just disappointed. That's the right way to say it. They're disappointed. The cross, like, we thought he was the one. We thought he was going to restore Israel. We thought all these things. And they're being negative. And Jesus literally walks up to them in Luke 24 while they're walking on this journey. and says, what are you guys talking about? Which I absolutely love that. It was Jesus, and they couldn't recognize him, even though they used to live with him. So he came in a form that they weren't used to seeing him as. Their eyes were restrained. 
And they said, well, you know, he's like, what are you guys talking about? Well, there's this guy named Jesus. They crucified him. It was terrible. We thought he was the one. We thought, we thought all, we had all these big hopes. Now we're, and so this stranger, air quotes, that just shows up out of the blue that they don't recognize in Luke 24, starts talking to them like, wasn't it necessary? Didn't the scriptures say that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and die and be raised back up? Like, is, is, hey, have you ever read Isaiah 45? Have you ever read Isaiah 54? Have you ever thought about 59? And have you ever, you know, he, he starts like, from the scriptures kind of give him like, isn't, it, isn't that what this whole thing was about, guys? And they're like, wow. So they get to the place where they were going to stop in Luke 24. And they're like, well, hey, we're, we're stopping here. But Jesus even though they couldn't recognize him, even though they knew him, because he came in a form that they weren't used to. He's like, well, I'm going to keep going, but it's good talking to you guys. <laughs> but they're like, please, please just stay with us, random stranger who we just met. Please come have dinner with us. And it says in Luke 24, when he sat down with them, what does it say? When was their eyes open? When he took that bread and he broke it and he gave thanks for it. It was the calling card. Here's a stranger. He cracks that open. <coughs> Excuse me. And the calling card hit, and they're like, oh my gosh, it's you. I love that. Maybe I'll just read that verse out loud really quick, just so that you know that it's in there and not a story I'm making up. Um, but yeah, like, <laughs> he said it there. It came to pass, as he sat at the table with them, Luke 24, 30. He took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to him. Breaking it. It says, then their eyes were open and they knew him. Imagine that. They were broken about the failure that had just happened. They thought something else was happening. Then he shows up. Isn't it written that Christ was going to have to suffer these things and enter into this glorious state? And they're like, man, God, I wish somebody would talk to us. Come eat dinner with us. He breaks that thing. It's like, oh, it's you. And he vanished right then. Isn't it interesting how the Lord, he came with a mission even for those guys. It was like, I needed, he wanted them to see who he was and for it to click. And once it clicked, time to go. Do you think, you know, it says that he was anointed with the oil of gladness above, above all of his brethren. But he was a man of many sorrows. Like, yeah, he suffered, man. But he also had joy above all of his fellows. So he was happy. Do you think our happy God enjoyed doing things like that to his kids who were so broken that he had left and smiling at them as he, as he broke that bread and they recognized the calling card and then boom, gone. Got him! He was like, got him! You know? And they rose up that very hour and they went to tell Simon and the boys, you know, like, Peter, listen, listen, we saw him, you know, and like he'd already come back to the girls. You know, it's a great story. Let's not go. But, you know, the calling card of communion, communion is about the complete and total restoration of all things. It's not a religious ritual. Um, it, is, it, is our, it is our ritual in Christianity. But to have reverence for it means that we understand it is his calling card. And whether you believe that Melchizedek was Jesus incarnate, like, you know, showing up in this experience to Abram or not, God was articulating something for us to see. He was giving this, this understanding like this, what's called the, the, a kingdom of priests. 
That's what Israel was called to be. Of course, everybody was scared of God, so he's like, no, Moses, you do it. And Moses was like, I stutter. So I was like, all right, pick your brother Aaron. You know, it's just like, but that we were all called to step into this relationship to God, this peculiar people that's a, king, a, a kingdom of priests. It is, oh man, it's like some Jedi stuff. I can't help to say that. I know it's immature kind of, but it's, I think it's the best analogy you can find with that stuff. It's like we were all called to know him, this Jeremiah 31, 33. You won't tell anybody to know God. Everyone will know him. Everyone will have this opportunity, this new covenant of the Spirit of God. It is, it is going to be people that are training and equipping this church, this ecclesia, this group, this people that are walking in communion and fellowship, which is the same word as that, as that ritual. And they've come to agreement of like, hey, there's a purpose of, of this reality. We're seeking, we're seeking something that is heavenly to be manifested into the earth, right? It's what he said, on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will prevail against it. Matthew 16, it's like there's this mission-minded people that come and they walk in this life of taking communion, of taking every thought captive, of taking everything that's not supposed to be in our lineage. You know, it's just like, how extreme do we get if we get, maybe it's a bad diagnosis or whatever, it's like, boom, it's, it come, things get real and we're like, that's not supposed to be in my life. But imagine having that same level of vigilance to taking every thought captive that's not supposed to be in our brain. There's a discipline that is in this walk of the kings and the priests, of the followers of the Lord, and there is, there's this symbolism of the Old Testament of like this projection of what it means to be a king and a priest, of, of what it means to be a follower of God, of what it means to be all in on the culture that is of the kingdom. Because that's what the family of heaven's about. It's about, it's about changing something. It's about, it's about, you know, there's even this culture of uh, churchianity, of the way, of the way that looks. And, but, it's, but it's not of heaven and it's not of the kingdom, you know. These people that went before us in, in like Hebrews 11, like searching for a, a city who's builder and maker of God, they could not be bought by the comforts of the religious machine or the, or the Babylonian world or any of this other stuff. They had purpose in mind of walking in unity and walking in this place of wholeness that came from the fellowship, that koinonia, which was the bread and the wine of the king, Amen. you know? You know, and, and we see these things like, you know, <clears throat> I'll close up, just finish up with Melchizedek. That's what I meant to do today. But <clears throat> in the book of Hebrews, because Hebrews takes incredible liberties, but I think it's liberties of the spirit. It talks about this king, this, this, this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the most high God who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. To whom also Abraham gave a, gave a tenth part of all. First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, which means king of peace. Without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of days nor ending of life, but made like the son of God, remains a, a priest continually. That's their reference for Jesus who, is, who comes in the order of Melchizedek. Mm. <clears throat> Verse 15 of Hebrews 7, it's, it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest. He's talking to the Hebrews about the king, about Jesus, who has come not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. What kind of a verse is that? This priest came according to a power, 
this, this unkillable priest. Remember, he said, I lay my life down. Nobody takes it from me. I'm laying it down, but I will take it back up again. Jesus said that. That's the toughest thing he ever said, I think. Like, they're not killing me. Don't, let, don't get it twisted. I'm laying it down, and I'm bringing it back. Don't you tolerate that. Don't you think I'm tolerating it. I'm taking it. I'm laying it down intentionally. I've come to give life and abundant life. Anything else is a lie rooted in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is poisonous. I'm the good guy, baby. Mm -mm. <clears throat> By so much more, Jesus has become a surety of this better covenant. Hebrews 7, 22, 23. It keeps going. Because there were many priests. They were prevented by, by death from continuing. In other words, they would die and then somebody else would step into that role. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. For such a high priest, it was fitting for us who's holy and harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. This is him. Have you ever heard Jesus called harmless before? Yeah. He is holy and he is harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That's beautiful. What did he say? Come to me, everybody who's weary and heavy laden, I'll give you rest. You'll find rest for your souls because I am gentle. That's harmless. I am gentle. Yeah. I am gentle and I am humble, lowly in heart. He's humble and he's harmless. You don't have to be afraid of me. That's what he's saying. You'll find rest for your souls. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. This is the king of righteousness, the king of peace. This is the king of your inheritance. This is our family tree. This is Jesus. I'm not saying Melchizedek's Jesus, although I think quite probably that that was him. He is the angel of the Lord, the embodiment of Yahweh. Um, but... There's no way to know that for absolute certain. But boy, if anybody had the calling card of Jesus, that bread and wine, it was Melchizedek. It was interesting. You know, we talk about the Dead Sea Scrolls sometimes. That's really done wonders for confirming a lot of the translations, the Septuagint stuff of the Bible and the way that stuff was written. And it's just, it's been such a, it was so good for the scriptures, you know. But there's some books there, the books of the giants, the books of Enoch and all these things. There's one called 11Q Melchizedek, and it talks about Melchizedek. And they considered Melchizedek to be an angelic divine figure that was appointed by God to judge the unrighteousness at the, to judge the unrighteous at the end of days. Like, so there's writings in the old Hebrew writings that were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls that they're thinking like, and this is before Jesus' time that those, those things were written by Jews. But even they were like hip to like, that ain't, he ain't, that ain't, that milk, that ain't normal. That ain't, a, that ain't one of us just normal Melchizedek something. There's something there. That, that yellow minivan with the sticker on the back, you know what I mean? And like that's, uh, I'm watching that, you know. They, they were already hip to something happening there. So he meets him. He receives the calling card. And I will, I will legitimately close with this. It says, after these things, Hebrews, oh, I'm sorry, Genesis 15. The word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. And again, this is the first time that's ever written in the Bible. The way that's worded. The way John talked about Jesus in um, John 1. In the beginning was the, the Word. 
And the Word was with God, but the Word was God. Yeah. That's the first time this, that's ever written that the Word of the Lord came to someone. You know, and then obviously after this you see it all the time, different prophets, you know, and you know, Samuel, the word of the Lord came and it stood and called out to Samuel, like, the word of the Lord has feet. And I was like, yeah, it was it's like an understanding of a concept of the embodiment. The word of the Lord was the embodiment of Yahweh, which we know who that is, Jesus, as John tells us. But it says, after these things, after communion, after he stepped into, more into his true inheritance with this king, this under this alignment of this priest and king. Also, do you understand, like, the king-priest, like, that's Adam's role. That was Adam's role first in Eden before he, before he dropped it. That's the, that's the role of humanity, the king, priest, the representatives of God. Yeah. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram and said, don't be afraid. It's interesting. That's always the word. Don't let fear steer you and your identity into somebody who you're not. Don't be afraid, Abram. I am your shield, your exceedingly great reward. I'm the one who guards you. You don't need to be afraid. I'm with you. To which Abram's like, you know, man, I'm old and I don't have kids. You've given me no offspring. How am I supposed to be a great nation and all this stuff? And the Lord brings him out. It says, the word of the Lord came to him saying, you know, you're not going to have an heir in your house from one of your servants. It will actually come from your own body. Your own body. And in verse 5 he says, he brought him outside and said, Look towards heaven and count the stars if you're able to number them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. And he believed the Lord and he accounted it to him for righteousness. And it's like, I love that. Abram's thinking a certain way. I've called you to be a nation. I've called you to be a blessing to the families of all the earth for all time. You know, all these different things. Like, dude, I'm old and I don't even have kids. And it says, the word of the Lord who came to him walks him outside, takes him outside. So it's like, if we could see this movie, what does this even look like? You know, does he, does he say, hey, come here, stand up out of your tent, follow me. And he wa- literally walks him outside and he, and he says, look up to heaven, count the stars if you're even able. You know, it's like, like look at this stuff, man. Check, check out this um, immeasurable scope. You know what I mean? Look, at, look, look outside of the frame of this plastic world. You know what I mean? I remember I, had a, I really suffered from OCD when I was younger, even when I was older. And um, just that, that kind of way, tension and anxiety and stuff. And I remember the night that I had a breakthrough of it was when I was taking trash out and I walk outside of my driveway this is quite a while back, but, and I looked up at the stars and there's something about getting outside and just breathing and just looking up and connecting to the Lord. And he spoke directly into me about my lineage, just like he was doing Abraham here or Abram at this time. He didn't have the H in his name yet. Um, but there's something that I feel like God wants for his people. And it's like, yo, like get outside and look up into the heavens, look up into the stars and understand the purpose and destiny, the scope of this thing is so much bigger than, than you've ever realized. You know what I mean? It's way bigger. It's, it's, far, it's far larger. And it's like, 
I understand the religious machine tries to keep people busy and, in, and engaged and involved and constantly running programs and this and that, you know. And I also think it's beautiful that so many people kind of unplugging from that way of thinking and realizing like, hey, God's not mad at me. I don't have hoops to jump through constantly in order to be pleasing to him. I don't have to just constantly be hustled, hustling to be, to be driven in order to be accepted by him and all these things. But I think there's another lane that's a balance that's neither one of those lanes, and it's the fear of the Lord. And it's somebody who becomes so obsessed, obsessed and even inspired with the plans and purposes of the kingdom that their drive isn't a drive to try to do everything right in order to be accepted or to not be rejected by God or to be a good Christian. It's like they, they become like those people of Hebrews 11 where it's like they are so um, inspired to follow the Lord that they become, even as Taylor said in the message last week, completely wholehearted in their devotion. They actually show up out of wholeheartedness and follow through and connection because it's like, wait, we have, we have a play in this. Our father, our inheritance, the kingdom come. We have a play in building and establishing the reality of heaven on this earth. And that to me, it makes my whole life tick, but it's inspiring. And it causes the mind to be open and to see things in a different way. All these prophetic experiences, all these things that Abram had and everybody that's followed him, myself included, it's like they come from a heart that's like all the way in, wholeheartedly devoted to God. That's how this whole thing starts, man. This whole thing starts the flood and then Noah and then Babel and all these rebellions. There was always one. That, you know, look at Genesis 5 and 6. Like there was one, there was Enoch. He was wholeheartedly, he was all the way in. He was obsessed with God. He was so in love with God that he was filled with heaven in his heart and his mind. And it says God took him. You know, he entered into the cross of Jesus Christ by actually his, because he was such a wholehearted follow through of God. The scripture says that he was seventh from Adam and he, and he lived 365 years. You know, seven days a week, 365 days a year. Like it, it, he, he embodied what it meant to be all the way about the kingdom in heaven and of its purposes, you know. And so here you have all that stuff gets started and stirred in this book of Genesis and this, this interesting lineage. And now here we are seeing it and seeing what it looks like where it says in like Romans 15, like these things happen for us to see, to learn from, you know. So maybe that'll be the homework for the week. Go outside, <laughs> look at some stars and um, connect to the Lord. Because the purpose and destiny that God has for you will cause you to come alive more than anything you can put your hands to in this life.